Good morning, Eastside family. Sorry I can't be with you this morning, but as I guess I told a bunch of you in a previous lesson, I am in Brno, the Czech Republic. This is a city where Karen and I lived and worked for many years as missionaries and have the opportunity right now for a few days to come back and do an absolutely incredible and intensive ministry with the, the people that we love and know so well here in this country. Hey, I just wanted to take a, a couple of minutes and kind of introduce to you what we're going to be doing this morning in our in our assembly. You know, I think one of the most powerful ways that we can carry out and live out our mission of making disciples of all nations is basically just to tell our story, to share Jesus with telling our testimony of what God has done in our lives. But I think when a lot of us hear the word testimony, we think to ourselves, the story of a guy who says, you know, I used to rob cars, steal cars. I used to work in the Mexican drug, drug cartel. I shipped drugs across the, the border, killed a lot of people, was in prison. And then I met Jesus and Jesus changed my life. We hear a testimony or think of a testimony like that. And so we think to ourselves, man, you know, I guess I don't have a story to share. And that's really not true. All of us have a story. It's just that our stories are different from other people's stories. And so what I've done this morning is I've asked someone to come and share with us this morning their story. And it's a story of someone who, like a lot of us, grew up going to church, grew up a, a pretty good kid. But there came a point in his life where his faith became more than just what he grew up with, but it became something that was personal to him. He came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I really think as you listen to this story this morning, I think it's really going to resonate with a lot of you and help you realize, hey, wow, I have a story to tell as well. So I want to encourage you this morning to give a rowdy welcome to someone that if I were using his name and saying his name in the Czech language, it would be Matos Elliot. But we know him in Colorado Springs as Matt Elliot. So listen, I love you guys. Look forward to seeing you when I get back. And Matt, thanks so much for sharing with our church body this morning. Let's welcome Matt. I really appreciate uh, your welcome this morning. Appreciate Eddie making the video. I want to make sure that we uh, uh, send our children that are two years old through first grade to junior worship. You can go now. Parents, you can take your kids down there right now. Also, this is the time that we uh, remind you that we do uh, take up an offering, and you can uh, look at all the different ways to do that here. You can mail it to the church address or do an automatic draft or give online. There's also uh, a, a, a box in the back where you can drop off a check or some cash this morning. We really appreciate the way you support this church. Um, it is great to speak to you today, but I will tell you that this now makes three weeks in a row that I have not led our worship. And that's, uh, that's really weird for me. Uh, I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago out of town, and last week, uh, Ben Wolf and the East Side uh, youth group did such a wonderful job leading worship. It was an honor to be here for that. Uh, I, that, just, that just made my whole month. Uh, and then today, of course, I'm speaking, so I'm really excited about being kind of back where I belong next Sunday. I'm looking forward to leading worship again, but I'm so thankful to Mark and to Ben and to Todd for leading worship while, uh, while I had some other things going on. Um, I have a confession for you this morning. It's a very grave confession. And a weird confession at that. I don't know many, that many people who have the same confession, but this is it. I have never been out of church, ever, in my entire life. Not even for a short time. 
I rarely have even missed church in my life. In fact, I truly cannot recall a time where I have missed two Sundays in a row, even with a pandemic thrown in. And I am 60 years old. I am as churched as it gets. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul of churchgoers, I have been the most churchgoingest. I grew up doing the big four. Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday morning worship, Sunday night worship, Wednesday nights. Every night of every gospel meeting. Gospel meeting is Church of Christ for revival, by the way. Uh, I, went, I went to VBS, every VBS, every day. Weeks upon weeks of summer Bible camp, 56 in all, a year and a month. I counted one time. Hay rides, senior banquets at church that were supposed to replace high school proms but never actually did. And speaking of proms, I didn't go to mine as I didn't want my gyrations to incite the lusts of the flesh. And I, of course, still am very concerned about that and try to behave myself. In elementary school, I had a note from my parents that got me excused from participating in square dancing lessons in PE class. This is not a joke. I can recall a tearful conversation with my beloved third grade teacher, Miss Carnes, in which I tried to convince her of the evils of instrumental music in worship. She was so loving and wonderful, and I did not want her precious soul to be in danger over such a thing. I was baptized in 1974 at the age of 11, and I say this with all honesty, I have never once questioned my sincerity at that time or my intentions at the time of my baptism. So I've never was one of those folks who felt like I got older and learned more stuff and need to do it again. No, I loved God as best I knew how with all my 11-year-old heart. So I do think I understood on some level God's love for me. Now my parents made me feel loved. My church community made me feel loved. And they made me feel like I was being rooted for at all times. And man, I mean that. So please don't misunderstand me and think that I'm somehow making fun of them or my parents in any way. That's just not the case. They're just sort of my people. And you know how you can kind of chuckle at your own people, but nobody else had better do that. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I feel about all of that. But what's clear to me is that while I did have some rudimentary understanding of God's love for me, I can tell you that I most assuredly did not have any understanding of the nature of God's love for everybody else. And I certainly didn't understand his love for people who weren't like me, the people who weren't against all the same things that I was against. I never missed church, but man, I sure missed the point. As I mentioned, I had very loving parents. They are still living, and my dad was a Church of Christ preacher up until a few years ago when his health uh, made it where he could not do it full-time anymore, and he did some part-time stuff, and he did some interim stuff for a while, and, but now he's at a place where he really just can't do that. Uh, Richard made a flannel graph joke a moment ago, and uh, one of the girls sitting behind me, a young girl, hurt, asked her father right behind me, what's a flannel graph? I wanted to say it was the 1974 version of PowerPoint. And uh, when my dad would go preach gospel meetings, I would go with him a lot of those nights because sometimes we'd be at a small rural church within an hour or hour and a half of our house, and I would go with him a lot. And my job was to make sure that all things flannel graph were in order. I would go through and make sure they were all in the correct order. And when they were done, I would take them down and put them back in the right order, and I would help him fold up this giant behemoth flannel board 
that he would load up every time. There's wonderful memories with my dad of, of doing that with him. Um, so I had very loving parents. Um, my parents, my mom and dad, made me believe that I could do anything that I set my mind to, that I was special. And if I achieved in their eyes, it was because I deserved to. And if I got the lead role in the high school musical, it was because I was clearly the most talented and the finest actor. Spoiler alert, I am the worst actor. Somewhere there is a videotape of me uh, slipping in and out of a bad accent while playing Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. But if I didn't get the lead role or the solo in the choir or the full tuition scholarship, it was because, again, in their eyes, somebody made a poor decision, but it wasn't me. I have a vivid memory of my sweet mama fussing at me one time for, get this now, not voting for myself for senior class favorite. <laughs> class favorite. <laughs> I remember saying something like, Mom, if I were running for office, it'd be kind of one thing, but seriously, I'm my favorite? I, I don't know that I'm ready to do that. Truth is, I probably should have voted for myself because I probably was my favorite. I don't like admitting that but there's some unfortunate truth to it. I can remember singing the hymn that we sang in church this morning, years I spent in vanity and pride. And I remember thinking, I wonder who that's aimed at. I wonder who, I wonder who, talk, I wonder who, who actually feels that way, because it's not me. I don't recall any vanity and pride years, which is a little ironic. While I'm aware of having noticed some injustices here and there, while I recall maybe a little mild questioning about the implications of some of my beliefs, I was pretty adept at pushing them deep, deep down, like any good Enneagram 7. As far as I knew, I was the best Christian for miles around. The cracks in the seams began to reveal themselves while I was attending Christian college. When I think about those days now, I think about it like when a really great high school athlete gets a college scholarship and they go to college, but now they're surrounded by every high school's very best athlete, right? And some of them seem better than her, and some of them might not even be all that impressed with her. Well, that's what happened to me at Christian College. In fact, because I got there thinking of myself as this great Christian, but I also very quickly joined a rock and roll band, many of my classmates naturally assumed that I must have been a wild child because only the wild children would play the rock and roll. I even felt a little shade, honest, from a professor or two. I also was exposed for the very first time to a version of Christianity that wasn't as kind, wasn't as loving or compassionate as the version that I felt I had seen in my dad or in my home church. If it was there, I just hadn't seen it. But I felt like I was surrounded by people who seemed to revel in condemning those who did not share our belief system, like they enjoyed it on some perverse level. And that began to gnaw at me. But questioning my beliefs also frightened me, so I just kept attempting to push it down deeper. And that began to take its toll. By my junior and senior years, um, I knew that something was way off, even though you probably wouldn't have known it to look at me because I always did a great job hiding it. I was mired in depression and anxiety but we didn't really have language for that in 1983 and 1984. The only thing I knew to do was to try churching even harder. 
I can remember a period when I was really down. It was fall of 1984. And uh, the college I went to had all these little churches all in the area. And two of them were having, again, gospel meetings, one this week and one the next week. And for two weeks, I went to church every night. Just kind of desperately trying to fix what was going on inside of me. And it didn't work. You know, when I was in college, um, when I would be running late on a Sunday morning, which was lots of Sunday mornings, when I'm trying to get myself out of bed to go to church, I would pull out a wrinkled dress shirt out of my laundry. And to save time, I would just iron the cuffs and the collar in like the center of the shirt. Then I'd slap on a tie and a jacket, and I was good to go. If I had taken off that jacket, people would have assumed that I had ironed it with a weed eater. That's a pretty good metaphor for my life at that time. All the parts that show look sharp. But inside, I'm a hot mess. Somehow in the midst of that, God allowed me still to meet and fall in love with this incredibly cute, hilarious, sharp-as-a-tack girl named Leela Jones. I always say Leela is the answer to everybody else's prayers for me. And the fact that she didn't dump me and run away as hard, as hard as she could is because of my parents' prayers and the prayers of my grandma and people like that. Because by the time I graduated from college in August of 1985, I was in rough shape. I finished college on a Friday that August, and the next day I moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama to begin graduate school the following Monday, so I got a two-day break from school. But to be very clear, I did not miss church that Sunday morning. I got up on that first morning in Tuscaloosa, which happened to be a Sunday, and took myself to Bible class and worship at the University Church of Christ, just adjacent to the University of Alabama, where I was going to be a student. That turned out to be one of the best moves I ever made because they asked me to lead singing the second Sunday. Apparently, they were a little desperate in a desperate situation themselves. And they asked me after I led singing if I would do it all the time. And they even gave me a little money. I believe it was $25 a Sunday, which as a graduate student in 1985, that was my grocery budget. That became my grocery budget. I agreed, and it was clear that if I was ever going to start missing church, it wouldn't be anytime soon. I was hopeful, but I had no idea the degree to which the decision to move to Tuscaloosa would change everything in my life. Because several key things converged while I was there. I was free for the first time to decide for myself what I wanted to do spiritually. For the first time, I could decide whether or not I wanted to attend church. Unlike my Christian college, there was no peer pressure to attend church. Just an aside, there were a couple times that I did sleep through church at Christian college, but I put on a coat and tie before going to the cafeteria for lunch so nobody would know. That was a common practice. Just a little freebie for you. Unlike my Christian college, there was no one to shame me if I had chosen not to go to church. There were no campus rules to keep me in check. And nothing set up to protect me from the world or from those who believed differently or held different values. And so here I am unleashed into the real world. 
as we say. And instead of finding it scary, I found it incredibly energizing. I actually got to know people who were different from me. I found that by learning their stories, I was capable of great compassion for them rather than judgment. I began to see it as an honor to be in a position to reflect the light of Jesus to the people around me. And as a result of that, I also began to appreciate the value of my church community. All the college students who attended that church, and there were about 150 of them at that time, were all going through the same thing every day. And so church was not just a place to worship, but it was also a place to recharge and to encourage and strengthen one another. I needed my church community more than I had ever had in, or ever had in my whole life. At the same time, I was in a master's level speech and rhetoric program that exposed me to the speeches and teachings and writings of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I became a student of the civil rights movement. I was particularly intrigued by my discovery that the movement's philosophy of nonviolence was deeply rooted in the teachings of Jesus Christ. For instance, nonviolent protesters in Birmingham, when everything was going on there with the, in, the, in the wake of the 16th Street bombing and when, the, when they were turning the fire hoses onto the crowds, those protesters were required to sign commitment cards on which they pledged, among other things, to meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. This is a, this is a shot. This, this is the actual card that they would have signed. There's more to it than that, but I wanted you to see that. They, were, they had to uh, pledge to seek justice and reconciliation rather than victory, to walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love, to pray every day, to sacrifice and to serve, to refrain from violence of the fist, tongue, or heart. And I cannot tell you what it meant to me there at the university to see how the teachings of Jesus were at the core of a movement that ended up, ended up radically changing the lives of my African-American brothers and sisters and friends, as well as everyone else's. And then most importantly, or most significantly, I should say, our campus minister, a lifelong friend of mine now, a guy named Buddy Bell, began teaching a Wednesday night class on the teachings of Jesus in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Buddy showed me that Jesus' first public teachings elevated the poor in spirit as well as the poor, the mourners and the meek. It elevated those who long for righteousness, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and those who are truly are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He called his followers to be salt and light in a world that was a hot mess even then. He taught that righteousness was more than ironing out the wrinkles that show in public, deeper than simply obeying rules about not murdering or committing adultery or divorcing or being dishonest or being violent or hating people. It was about developing a heart that loves enemies as well as God and neighbors, a heart that treats others with respect that is honest and trustworthy, that responds to worldly disrespect and persecution using only the weapon of love. It's about following God in a way that is not showy or pretentious. It's a call to love others enough to treat them as we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes, regardless of how they may have treated us, uh, regardless of, uh, of how they continue to treat us. In fact, if they set themselves up as our enemies, we pray for them. 
It's a challenge to not only listen to Jesus' teachings, but to go further, to put them into practice, even the ones that sound crazy, like turning the other cheek. And when Jesus' disciples live lives that look like that, I began to see that's when we can really make an impact on the world around us, and there's no substitute or shortcut for it. It was verse 24 of chapter 7 that really challenged me. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Up to this point, I had just been soaking up teachings and doctrines and theology, but I hadn't put much into practice. As a result, I was living a lot like that one guy in Luke chapter 10, the one who asked Jesus specifically what must be done to inherit eternal life. You may recall that Jesus tells him, well, it comes down to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors yourself. And then scripture says this in verse 29 of Luke 10, but he wanted, the man, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that, of course, is when Jesus tells the story that we call the Good Samaritan. We're not going to unpack that today. But I want to look at this question for just a moment, because I know what it means to simply want to justify myself. This question is pregnant with implications. It's not a simple question. It's loaded up. It doesn't just say, who is my neighbor? It's also asking, well, who isn't my neighbor? Who can I get away with not loving? And what do you mean by love? Define love for me. What's the least I have to do? Can I still call it love if I enjoy telling them that they're lost or hell-bound? Can I still call it love if I keep my distance from them for the sake of my own reputation or, for whatever, or from whatever ch- other church people might think? These are the types of mental gymnastics that I had been participating in for a long, long time. How can I technically obey God and still do what I want to do and not do what I don't want to do? How much can I get away with without risking eternity? But seeing Jesus changed the question for me. For the first time in my life, I finally understood that loving all the people who were created in God's image was what I was called to do. Jesus wanted me to put his words, even his most challenging words, into practice. I finally got the point. And the point, as the New Testament makes clear again and again, is love. Accepting the Father's deep, deep love for us loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as Jesus loves me. Living a life where the fruit of the Spirit is growing in me. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so I begin to see that a good check for me is that as I grow, as, as years pass, Am I growing less kind or less patient? Do I have less self-control than I used to? Because if that's the case, that's a sign that I may be quenching the work of the Spirit in my life. When Peter talks about these same qualities that the Spirit gives us, he concludes with this statement. He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. In short, I cannot be in step with the Spirit if I'm going in the wrong direction in any of those areas. If I find that happening, 
it's time for me to ask God to show me where I've gotten out of step. And then not surprisingly, finally getting the point, or at least starting to, launched me down a path that led me into ministry. Upon completing my master's, I began serving that Tuscaloosa congregation as youth minister, which led me to other ministry opportunities in Pensacola, Florida, Metro Atlanta, Georgia, and ultimately Colorado Springs. Now, I don't mean to imply that everyone who takes Jesus seriously goes into full-time ministry. I'm not even sure I would recommend that, but it's what it looked like for me. And by the way, for those of you who ever wonder why is he such a rabid Alabama fan, this is all tied up together. You know kind of what I mean? All of that happened at the same time, and so that's where some of that that fervor comes for. Plus, I found Jesus in Tuscaloosa, so naturally I figure he must have been living there the whole time, and he must be a Bama fan as well. You can take that for what it's worth. (laughs) These days, they call the process deconstruction, which is a scary word for some, but it's simply the process of peeling away the layers and deciding what in my life have I been taught that is good and right and true, and what is contrived and expendable false. That process, everybody kind of has to walk through a process like that for your faith to truly become your own. And sometimes, as we continue to grow, it continues over a lifetime. So as a result, some of my beliefs in theology have continued to morph and change over the years. But here's the thing, it always comes back to Jesus for me. Jesus is the one I absolutely cannot escape. He is still as irresistible and irreplaceable as ever. Some of you may have never really walked through that whole process of sifting through your beliefs because it does sound scary. If that's you, I would just say don't be afraid. And during the process, do the things you know to do. Keep going to church. If I hadn't gone to church that first Sunday morning in Tuscaloosa, I don't know what happens. Keep going to church. Keep studying the words of Jesus and keep putting what you know into practice. But make sure love is a part of everything that you do. The only thing that counts, Galatians 5 verse 6 says, is faith expressing itself through love. Otherwise, you too may never miss church, but you might miss the point. I want to ask Mark and the worship team to come on up. I don't know if my story speaks to you or not, but it's my story. The story of how Jesus worked in my life. But I know you have your story. And it's worth telling. My prayer for us today is that God would grant us the courage to tell our stories of how Jesus changed us. And most importantly, that we would live out those stories, living as children of light in a dark world. As I close today, I'd ask you to stand with me. To stand with me. If if you're able. And join me as we pray together in what is commonly known as the prayer of St. Francis. And after we pray, if there's any way we can pray for you, we hope that you will find one of our elders or ministers or, or anyone around you to pray for them. And those of you who know people who need your prayers, go and pray with them. But let's pray this together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, 
Grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we received, that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone say together, Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.